when you read a passage, typically there's a verse or a phrase that stands out that tells you what that passage is about. Well, in this passage, that verse would be verse 2, which says, Walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us. So we continue our, our series in Ephesians, uh, becoming who we are. Uh, Paul has just explained in the previous passage that through faith, we are now new people. Christ has put off the old person so that he could put on a new person created in the image of himself. And we're on this life journey, as we're on this life journey, uh, we're learning to let go of habits and tendencies and fears that trip us up to grab hold to who we are now in Christ. In other words, I'm already his, but I need to grow into that. I need to grow into understanding what that entails. In my heart of hearts, I need to grow into really, truly believing it, holding on to it, not doubting when temptations and storms of life come, but standing firm in who I am through Christ, through Christ alone. But being his is not just a personal endeavor. It's not something I just do alone. It's something I do in a community. As Pastor Tim covered in chapter 4, Chapter 4 is primarily about relationships, how we relate to one another, how the people of God work with each other. And honestly, if we look at relationships, you all know this, they take a lot of work, don't they? They don't come easy. It's easy to assume just because the New Testament church had a lot of great things happening. You look at the book of Acts, you see it exploding on the scene, thousands of people coming and worshiping together. It seemed like they just lived life together. They didn't need a life group. They were a constant life group. But Paul suggests here that even they had issues. Even they had things they had to work on. They had to fight for unity. According to Paul, if you look at some of the things that were mentioned in this passage, he had to command them not to lie, steal, lose their temper, speak in destructive ways to one another, and hold on to bitterness. This is the church. This is not outside the church. Even in the church, people had to be commanded. We have to love each other. Because even though we're saved by grace, we're growing in grace. Amen? Amen. We're growing. We're changing. We're not there yet. We haven't arrived yet. We still wrestle with the battle of sin within our hearts. And sin has a tendency of making us distort things a little bit. We tend to minimize our own faults and magnify the faults of others. We tend to have a tendency of looking at the faults of others like a UV light in a hotel. And you see the bad bugs and the germs. They're all over the place. We tend to do that to others because of sin's work in our hearts without grace. Making relationships really, really challenging. And Paul's saying that though conflict will come, because it's bound to come in, in relationships where fallen people are growing in grace, amen, we're growing in grace, there's a way we can act as new people. That way is we're to love each other as Christ loved us. We're not just to give in to our tendencies, we're to love each other as Christ loves us. And this passage shows us what that looks like by explaining, first off, it will affect the way we treat each other it will affect how we treat each other. The first way Paul describes this in verse 25, saying, 
Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Now that verb, therefore, connects us obviously to the last passage, where the old person is described as having a distorted view on life. His very denial of God has thrown him off the path of truth, which makes him believe at least two lies. One, since God is not his authority, he can live however he wants. He is the ruler of his life. Two, therefore he can worship people, things, and desires as if they are God themselves. It reminds me of the former quarterback, Joe Theismann, who was, um, when he was confronted about having an affair on his soon-to-be second ex-wife, said, God wants Joe Theismann to be happy. Could you imagine? When you think about some of the mass shootings that have happened, terrible, terrible mass shootings, I always wondered to myself, how in the world can you even come close to justifying killing innocent people? But then I think about what Scripture says, and I'm reminded it's when you become the absolute authority in your life that you can convince yourself anything you want. You can manipulate reality to, see, to make it fit whatever you want it to fit. You can justify what you want to do and whoever you want to be. With the disclaimer, I deserve to be happy. Right? Or, or stop being judgmental. Or even, God made me this way. Folks, when we hear those words, we need to step back and realize these people have become a God unto themselves. And they are being manipulated by Satan, who Jesus told us is the great deceiver and father of lies. But Paul says in verse 25, since Christ has removed this old person in you, you have the power to live gospel truth lives. In reverence to God, you now have the power to live as people of integrity. Someone people will look at and know they will treat them justly, and you can expect to get the truth and nothing but the truth from them consistently. British publication was doing a prize on the best definition for friendships. And the one definition that one out of thousands of ones that were brought up was this. A friend is one who multiplies joys, divides griefs, and whose honesty is inviolable. That's what the body of Christ is supposed to be. The body of Christ is supposed to be a place where people can expect to be told the truth. The writer and um, theologian Chrysostom describes this honesty amongst church members like the eye not telling the foot that it sees a serpent on the path to avoid being bitten by that serpent. Or the nose smelling that a substance in front of it is deadly, maybe poisonous, not letting the mouth know that it shouldn't ingest that because it's deadly and poisonous. It's, it's madness. When you, as a member, don't let another member know that they could potentially be in danger, you're sinking the whole body. You're attached to one another. There is a connection that is truly deep. And without the ability to communicate with each other honestly, you cannot rely on one another. The body cannot function without its body, without its members being able to rely on one, one another. One of the most detrimental things we can do is surround ourselves with people who will only praise us, who will only tell us good things. I think about celebrities, you see these reality shows, and they're always surrounded by yes men, right? Yes? 
Am I the only one that knows? They're always surrounded by people that tell them how great they are. I mean, if they had the idea of maybe I'll walk off a cliff, I think their friends would say, great idea. Great idea. But when I look at the modern church today, there's one area I think we struggle with is honesty. There are too many pulpits that won't acknowledge sin. And too many churches that only focus on love. And scripture is clear. Loving each other as Christ loves us is lovingly telling people the truth. You have to wonder how much spiritual depth a person can have if they're only told all the wonderful things they do. And they're never challenged to see God wants more for you. He wants more for you. Loving each other in Christ is telling each other the truth. Second man he gives in verses 26 through 27. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. The command, be angry, may come off strange because typically we're not told to be angry. But anger in itself is not wrong or right. It's a reaction. It's a reaction to something. Simply a response to when you feel slighted or wrong. Now, whether that's true or not is debatable. For instance, uh, the student that gets an F in class and therefore believes that the teacher's out to get them may be a little far off with that assumption. But if he knows that that teacher does not like them, specifically because they are a Christian, and they're in a philosophy and religious class where they write a paper that seems too Christian-y, his anger might be justified to get that F. Or if a relative tells a secret that we told them in confidence, we may be justified to have a reaction to that. But even more strongly, when we see hate crimes, and we see sex trafficking, and we see rape taking place, that makes me angry. We see plenty instances in Scripture where God is angry at his people being oppressed and the destitute being oppressed. There is righteous anger when injustice is done. Would you agree with that? Yet Paul commands this, this command of anger with a condition. Do not what? Do not sin. You can feel it. If justified, you can feel it. But don't let it control you. Wait a minute. What if someone offends me? The unspoken rule is they're supposed to come to me and fix the problem, right? Matthew 18 suggests that humbly we're to go to them in love and tell them that they offended us. And if they don't listen, bring two or three. And if they don't listen even to that, bring the church. The heart of the passage is in all instances, as much as we can, try to be peaceable with that person because that's to love them as Christ has loved us. Amen? And if you don't, Satan will divide you. The Greek word for giving Satan a foothold here is, is tapos. Literally means a place. The same word is used in Romans 12, 9 to, to suggest leaving room, tapos, for God to take vengeance in the situation. Don't get in God's way. Similarly, the word here is suggesting that holding on to anger is like giving Satan space real estate in your heart. And the longer you hold on to it, the more real estate you're giving Satan in your heart 
to control you. To have his way in and through you. It's like trying to hold acid in a container that cannot, be hold, it, that cannot hold it. It's like putting a, a bit in a horse's mouth. In that moment, Satan has the power to do whatever he wants with us. And I think how many people I know and you know that haven't talked to a sibling, a parent, a child for years. Five, ten plus years. No words. Can't even bring themselves to have a conversation with them. I think of people who can't even speak to each other in their own dwellings. In that moment, Satan has gained an influence on your life. And if you're not careful, it can hurt you and the people you love far more than you even realize. I think to myself about how many times we usually resort to saying, if we just leave the situation, we leave the church, we leave that relationship, that will fix the problem. But I tell you something, your problems will follow you where you go. Because the problems in your heart, the hate, you can't leave it behind. It will be projected onto others with paranoia and doubt. It is not limited to that relationship. Do you hear what I'm saying to you? Until by the grace of God, you unpack it, you let it be, you repent and take a step forward towards reconciliation, the heartache will follow you wherever you go. It will. Verse 28 says, Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Now, for us, stealing is a no-brainer. I, I hope it's a no-brainer. But back then, it really was a problem. Um, people would have seasonal jobs, and having seasonal jobs, they'd have times they weren't working and weren't making enough money. And so, literally, there was no welfare system back there. There was no unemployment check. If you didn't work, you didn't eat. You and your family was in a, were in a very difficult situation. And Paul's encouraging them, work harder, find more work. Try to provide for your needs because there are people out there who truly can't work at all among the body of Christ you can help. And then generally, as I look at that point, I think it's, a, it's, it's bringing out a point we sorely need to take to heart as a church in this day and age. As new people, we have to look at money and work differently. We have to consider when we come to payday that it's just, not just about fantasizing about the latest thing we can get or buy for ourselves. Work is for more than your own needs now. Work is beyond what we want to get. We have been blessed with the skills and the health to work to bless others too. It's what new people see. They have a radically different perspective on life. It's beyond themselves. You think of Paul taking collection for uh, the Christians in Jerusalem as an example of this. Or the church in Philippi taking collection for him while he was in jail. We're to be generous towards those in need amongst us. And that generosity is to spread even to the world around us, especially. James 1.27 says, Religion that, that God our Father accepts is pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted 
by the world. A world where people are constantly looking for what they can get from us. You know what's different? People are looking to give. When the world sees people who are looking to give, they see a love like Christ has loved us. Verse 29 continues with the fourth command saying, do not, let any, any, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their need, that it may benefit those who listen. The, the word corrupt here is the same word that, that Jesus uses in Matthew 7, 17 to describe a, a sick tree producing bad fruit. It means rotten. Uh, to say anything that would be harmful or abusive towards someone else. Uh, the reason w Jesus uh, warns us, you know, uh, that we will give account for anything we say is because words have a definite, powerful influence on our lives. Proverbs 18.21 tells us, the tongue has the power of life or death, and death. Now you think of that, and you consider how much flippantly we may say things. Yet Proverbs tells us, Proverbs 10, 19, in the abundance of words, sin is not lacking. James describes the tongue as a, as a fire, or set on fire by fi or set on hell by fire, a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Unfiltered, the tongue causes wounds that I think we don't even notice. We don't even realize. How many times have you heard someone tell you? that they're still struggling with something that was said to them by their parents when they were six. Or, or their teacher said this to them when they were in high school. Or, or something their spouse said to them years ago is still ruminating in their minds and hearts. See, Satan uses these words to warp the way we look at ourselves and reality. And Paul, in his understanding, is that words can be used to either give life or death. So give life. Give life through the way you talk to people. He says, only use such words, indicating you need to be thoughtful every time you speak, that your words can truly produce life or death in those individuals. A certain word he uses, he says, benefit those in need. That word benefit actually means, or in the Greek, is karas, grace. To provide grace to people through the way you say things. There's a right time and a right way to say certain things. And it could be a real source of encouragement to that individual. Uh, there's a young man in a church who uh, was going to be praying in front of the church for the first time. And as he got up to the pulpit, he felt, uh, you know, really solid and confident until he actually started to pray. Uh, when he started to pray, he said nervously, um, Father, thank you for hanging on the cross. It's Jesus who hung on the cross not the Father. He goes on praising Christ. Um, he praised Christ for raising the Spirit from the grave, um, realizing that he had kind of flustered his theology and his prayer. Um, shortly after, he got down there, and as soon as the service order over, he tried to run out the door. But an older gentleman of the church stopped him and said, he said, Larry, there's one thing I want you to know. Whatever you do for the Lord, I'm with you. 1,000%. You see, that's giving grace in a time of need. That's loving each other as Christ loved us. And he's equipped us with a spirit to do this. A spirit who is an agent of peace and reconciliation, not just 
between us and the Father, but between all of us collectively. And he grieves when we don't listen to him because he knows that we can spare so much pain if we would allow him to do his work of empowering and equipping us to forgive and minister to one another. I think of a time when I was younger. Um, my mom has always struggled with mental illness as long as I've been alive. And there was a time she stopped taking her, her medicine uh, for bipolar schizophrenia. And uh, we managed to get her to a doctor's office uh, a little deceptively, but it was the only way we could get her there. And as soon as she realized she was there, she wanted to walk out. And no matter how much we start, tried to reason with her, I should say, um, she was still trying to push us away to get through until finally I just started sobbing and begging her, you need this, please stay. There was nothing I could say that can cut through the fog and the days than those tears. The Spirit grieves for us. You get what I'm saying there? He grieves because he knows how much pain could be spared if we would listen to him. Love must be expressed to each other in tangible ways, but it must start in how we look at each other, too. Listen, verse 31 is, is progressive. It, it's ignited, though, by a bitter spirit. It, it, it's to carry in your heart festering resentment that leads to outbursts, shouting, abusive language. Uh, we saw this type of relationship between King David, well, before he was king, David, and King Saul. Whereas David became successful in the kingdom and he's winning battles and, and people are loving him, Saul starts getting really jealous within. And he starts thinking to himself thoughts along the lines of, David's trying to take over my throne. The people love him more than me. He's just looking for a moment to pounce, but I'll kill him before he gets a chance. And we see instances where Saul is literally trying to pin David to the wall which eventually ends up in him relentlessly pursuing David throughout the wilderness for years. But where did it start? Bitter jealousy. Bitter jealousy. Paul's point in this passage, our passage, is once again, bitter anger erupts into something you cannot control. Even if you think it's justified. As we have paid the incident in our hearts, as we try to look at the situation, we go over it, we mull over it, it's almost like we embolden ourselves to say things we wouldn't normally say. We start acting out in ways we wouldn't typically act out. And finally, when we come to our senses, it's too late. We've already erupted. The damage has been done. You know, sometimes I'll have uh, people come to me and say, uh, confrontation seems to follow me wherever I go. It seems wherever I go, I go to this church, I'm in this relationship, I'm in that relationship. It seems like I can't get away from people hurting me. But a confrontation seems to follow you wherever you go. You have to consider you're at least part of the problem. At least part of the problem. We're warned to get rid of all forms of bitterness, anger. A lot of times people don't even realize it's within them. It's within them. Instead, we're to be kind and compassionate. The word translated um, as, as forgiving in verse 32 is actually better translated as gracious. To be gracious. It it's encompasses forgiving but emphasizing God's generous nature. God's willingness to give even when 
He doesn't have to. Maybe by right shouldn't have to give, but is still willing to. How he's willing to give unceasingly. It's the counter of a bitter spirit to be a generous spirit. To give to others even when it hurts. Things are happening in, in your relationships and in the body that breaks your heart. To give. To give. To not recoil, to not withdraw, but like Christ, to continue to give unlimited. That's loving each other as Christ loved us. It's the love with no boundaries, as C.S. Lewis put it. To love it all is to be honored. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. On January 23, 1999, um, Gladys, who is a, was a missionary uh, with her husband and two boys and daughter, um, well, the husband and two boys were sleeping in a car uh, near a remote Indian village. They've been missionaries in this village to lepers for 34 years. Well, while the father and son were sleeping, um, some Hindu militants came by with gasoline, and they soaked the car. And they set it on fire. And they barricaded the car so that they wouldn't be able to escape. And kept rescuers from being able to take the father and son from coming out. It was a terrible tragedy, as you can imagine. It made national headlines. Yet Gladys' response um, when she heard about it was this. When I learned that my family was dead, I told my daughter, we'll forgive, then won't we? And she said, yes, mommy, we'll forgive. She explained that forgiveness brings healing. It allows the other person a chance to start life afresh. If I have something against you and I forgive you, the bitterness leaves me. Forgiveness liberates both the forgiver and the forgiven. How was I able to forgive? The truth is that I myself am a sinner. I needed Jesus Christ to forgive me. Because I have Jesus in my life, it is possible for me to forgive others. Prior to that incident, their ministry wasn't well known, wasn't well known at all beyond the local people they ministered to. But then it became national. And with that attention came criticism and persecution. It was not easy for her at all. But as one commented, her kindness and compassion against the backdrop of bitterness and rage are even greater witness to Christ. If her heart were filled with bitterness and rage towards those who had treated her so badly, her ministry of the gospel would be over. Boy, that's so true. The accounts of Gladys' forgiveness kind of circulated around to different villages. One missionary who was ministering to a local man gave him a track. And the man's response was this, who received the track. Is this the same Jesus that Gladys Thanes believes in? When told yes, he said, I want to know that Jesus. That kind of love, first of all, supernatural. There's nobody in here that could do that without the grace of God. It is the mark of being a child of God to love like this. And Paul says that we're dearly loved children. It's a personal term. It's not just talking about a father and child relationship, but a personal type of child and father relationship. God used this term to describe his um, relationship, or more so, Abraham's relationship with, with, with Isaac was described this way. And Jesus, 
relationship with the father is described this way as well. It's a child who shadows their parent. Um, when I used to get ready for preaching in Berlin, uh, Aaron would follow me from room to room with one of my shirts draped over him. And he'd be asking questions. You know Aaron, he's always, he's always asking questions. And, and very intentively just kind of studying everything I did because he kind of just wanted to be like me. It's just the natural response of a child and parent relationship. They find joy in imitating you and wanting to please you. I mean, it's amazing to me how often I see his heart melt when I say, good job. He doesn't have to win my approval. He wants to win my approval. We always want the approval of those we love. We want to honor them, don't we? When you, feel, when you truly feel loved by someone, you want to, you enjoy honoring and serving them with all your heart. It's just a natural reaction to that love. And Paul is saying similarly, as dearly loved children, lost my space here, verse 2, he says, walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Christ's love by giving himself up. He said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friend, Christ's love was costly. But even more important than that, he was willing to give it. He didn't hold it back. It was something he joyfully, willingly gave for us. It was a fragrant offering to God, something that pleased the Father, because it was from his heart that he laid down himself for you and me. That's what makes it so passionate, that he didn't resist it, giving it all. When you consider the debt of sin we were in, that we were enemies, that we were so resistant to God, he came running after us, and we wanted to push him completely away. That is love beyond me. Isaiah 53, 5 reminds us, but he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Biblical scholar Harold Horner wrote it like this. Christ's love cost his life. Should our love be without cost? Folks, I don't think you can love without cost. It's going to cost you something. There are many moralists who agree with a lot of things we've said today. Both back in Paul's day and now. They'd agree you should be kind. They'd agree you should control your temper. Hopefully they agree you should not steal. There's a lot of messages about being loving and accepting but rarely do people define it by the cross. See, when you define it by the cross, it's a completely different standard, isn't it? It's to be willing to lay down your life, lay down your preferences, lay down your rights, even be willing to face injustice at times, false accusations for the sake of the good of the other and the unity of that relationship and the body. Love like that covers a multitude of sin. And folks, I just want to encourage you, that might be what your relationship, whatever one it may be right now, needs. It certainly is what all our relationships here at the crossing needs from time to time, because we stumble in many ways. If you're feeling discouraged right now, I just encourage you to look to the cross. Look to the cross. True love always demands all of me. 
And how can I deny giving that kind of love to others when I consider how great God's love was for me? The song says, and I invite you to read it with me on the screen, we are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord. Read it with me. We are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord, and we pray that our unity will one day be restored and they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Are you willing to be a uniting presence at the Crossing Church? Because it will cost you something. It will cost you something. To love each other, we need to be loving just as Christ loved us. I pray that for you. I think we're in the right direction. But we need to fight for unity. Thank you.